uh, this morning I'm continuing a series that works through the Gospel of John, but as I introduce this one, we are working through the Gospel of John backwards. So it's a bit of a rewind. I started this last week, and I started this with the scene that takes place with Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and it is the scene that happens right before Jesus is taken out and nailed to the cross. So that, that's where we picked up the story, starting right at that moment, right up to the moment when Jesus is taken to be crucified. And now we're going to keep taking steps backwards. And we're doing this so that we can see the way that Jesus has been preparing his people for what's coming, preparing his disciples for what Jesus knows he must do. And it's something to remind us, too, as we today look back on the cross and see the cross in hindsight, that reminder that comes to us that Jesus prepares us for what he's already done, prepares us for how to receive that in faith and live with that. So today, today I'm going to read a story that backs up to chapter 16 into chapter 17. Let me give a context around this so you know where this story falls, okay? In chapter, in the chapters right before this, it's the scene of the Last Supper. So you, you know that scene that Jesus is with his disciples and they are celebrating Passover together. And it's that scene where Jesus then, in that supper, he predicts, one of you is going to betray me, and it's Judas. And, and then he tells Peter, before this night is over, you're going to deny you even know me. Not once, not twice, three times. That's what takes place in that time. From there, after the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus prays that the cup would be taken from him. And the soldiers with Judas come to arrest him there. So what we're going to read today comes between those two things. They've already had the Last Supper. They've already celebrated the Passover together. That's already taken place. And we have not yet come to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested. That is still coming. Here's the words that Jesus has then. As they're leaving the Last Supper, as they're on their way out, as they're going towards the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins talking about the way that he is going to leave them and return to the Father, that the time is near for him to go, but that he will send another, an advocate, the Holy Spirit, in his place. Here's how the disciples respond to that then. In the end of chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading at verse, 20, verse 25. Jesus says this, Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then, then Jesus' disciples said to him, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. 
Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who are given, have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So something about this conversation that takes place here, that Jesus and his disciples in this moment, the Passover is finished. They've celebrated the supper. Jesus has, has done some unusual things during this. Uh, it's in this last supper, Passover, that Jesus bends down and washes the feet of his disciples, a task that was common in that day, but usually a task that was given to the lowest of the servants in the household to do that. And here Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the master, the Lord, is the one who takes on that lowest of all tasks to wash his disciples' feet. He's talking with them about things that I guess I can only imagine the disciples would have received as nonsense. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? What do you mean Peter is going to disown and deny you? What do you mean that we will all be scattered? What do you mean you're leaving? You're going away, back to the Father. What do you mean you're sending an advocate, a Holy Spirit? I think if I were one of the disciples, I, I would have been rather confused by all the events taking place around this. What is going on? But then this conversation, right? This conversation where the disciples then, they don't ask him questions of, Jesus, we are so lost right now. We don't get what you're doing. No. They almost say just the opposite. Jesus, we get it. You're not talking figuratively anymore. I think that's in reference to the parables. So often when Jesus would teach, he would teach with stories. That, that the disciples are in a place where they say, at last, 
You're not talking about farmers and seeds and vines and all of that, sheep and shepherds. You're just using words that make sense. At last, you're talking plain, regular. But does that mean they get it? Does that mean they understand? They say they do. They say in that statement, we get it now. We believe that you came from God. But look at how Jesus responds to that. Look at the response that he gives. He asks, do you now believe? Let me give a little translation note on this because if you were following along with the Bibles that we have in the chairs here, it, it's the older NIV version, and it doesn't say that. In the older NIV, if you're looking at it, it says, Jesus replies, at last you believe, as though it's a statement of affirmation. I'm glad that the newer NIV fixed that because this is not Jesus affirming the belief of his disciples. This is Jesus asking a question that throws their belief into something of doubt. But it's a doubt that's mixed with faith. We're going to unpack that. Let's figure out what that means. That Jesus is acknowledging, yes, his disciples have faith. Yes, his disciples believe. But what exactly is it that they believe? What is this belief that they're hanging on to? Do they really understand? Do they really get what's happening in this story? Do they really know? I think it's a fair question. And I think it's a question that's fair, not just for the disciples back then, who really had no idea what was going to happen even in the next 12 hours. That 24 hours from that moment, Jesus would be in a grave. That he would be killed. They didn't know that was happening, that that was going to be coming in the very next day. Of course they didn't know. But the question still comes to us today, too. Do we know? Do we know what that means? Why Jesus did that? How that impacts us in what we believe? People believe a lot of different things about God and who God is. And if you were to go around and ask people who they believe God is, you would get many different answers back. There's one study out there that studies how people believe about God based upon what they pray. And based on that study, the conclusion was most people believe that God is Santa Claus. Because most people's prayers, when most people pray to God, their prayers are one thing. A list of God, give me this. God, do this for me. God, I would like you to do this. I would like you to heal me or I would like you to send me blessing. It's a Santa Claus list. So uh, the conclusion of that study, and it was not done by a Christian institute, but, but the conclusion of that study was most people believe that God is Santa Claus. You just bring your list to him, and if you're a good little boy or girl, then you'll get what you wish for on your list. That's how most people out there think of God, believe in God that way. It's a fair question, a fair question for us to ask yet today. So what do we believe about God, about who God is, about what God has done, about how God is at work? 
Jesus asks this question to the disciples, but I think John keeps this in the gospel for us to read yet today because this is a question for us as well, isn't it? Do you believe? What do you believe? How does that work? Let me reference another story. And this one comes from the Gospel of Mark. This is one, I'll, I'll set this up. There's, there's a young boy who is possessed by a demon. And they bring him to Jesus, and his parents are there, and, and Jesus heals this demon-possessed boy. But here's the conversation that Jesus has with the father of that boy. Okay, this is from Mark chapter 9. And this is what the father responds when Jesus asks him, how long have you been like this? And he asks, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on him. Help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. There's something in this story, something that, that maybe is helpful for us to understand that belief maybe is not black and white, all in or all out. I either believe in God or I don't believe in God. I either understand God or I don't understand God. Maybe it's not helpful for us to use categories of absolutes like that, that it necessarily has to be all one or all the other. But I think what we see in this story of this father is a progressing belief. I understand some things. I believe some things about you as, as you have revealed yourself, but there's more that I don't know. There's more that I don't understand. There's a level of belief that draws me further in. It's a confession, though. A confession. God, thank you for the faith that you've given me to believe who you are as you've revealed yourself to be. And for all those places where I struggle to understand and still don't understand, and further that I have to go in my faith, help me in my unbelief, to believe more, to understand more fully. That belief, that faith is something that is always forming in us. It's a term that we use when we talk about discipleship. Faith formation, that it's an ongoing process. So I think when Jesus asks this question, do you now believe it's not looking for a black and white answer. But it's trying to measure, where are you at right now? On that continuum, on that spectrum, on that journey, on that formation of faith that is ongoing. Where do we plot ourselves on that map? That faith formation means we're always being pulled deeper into faith. Always being pulled into greater belief on that journey that we're on. And then Jesus throws into this another phrase. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, I, I referenced this uh, study about 
what people think about God, right? The, the one that says most people actually think God is Santa Claus. Here's the other thing that was noted through that study that um, people tend to believe in God more in times of the extreme, either the extreme of um, God is giving me all the blessings I want or I'm in a desperate hour of need where I turn to God. Acknowledging trouble, that there is a world of struggle. And this is where belief really takes shape, isn't it? It's in those moments where we have to ask ourselves the question of where God is and what God is doing and how that forms in our lives around us in times of struggle, where those steps of faith seem to move forward in the most formative ways, don't they? Because it's easy to proclaim belief in God when everything's going your way. But it takes a strong step of faith to declare faith in God when everything in, world, in your world seems to be falling apart around you. So what Jesus is acknowledging when he talks about the trouble that's in the world, he's, he's saying that belief in Jesus does not magically take away all the troubles of the world. It's not like everything that we struggle with disappears. That's not what belief does for us. Sometimes maybe people make that mistake. If I just believe enough, if my faith is just strong enough, then life will get better. I won't have struggles. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Belief and faith don't magically make the struggles go away. Look at how Jesus ends that. He says, I'm telling you this for a reason. I'm telling this to you so that you may have peace in a world of trouble. In a world of trouble. It's not a swap out. It's not a swap out where Jesus says, I'm going to take all the trouble away and I'm going to give you peace in its place. No. Jesus says, you know what? That world that's broken by sin, that world that we are still in, broken by sin. Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace in that world, even with the trouble, even with the struggles that come my way. What does this look like? How does this work? I, I think that's where, that's where our application comes out of this today. How do you know that kind of peace? What does that look like in our lives today? How do we live as people who know and experience that kind of peace? There's something else going on around this story because this is not just a story about the disciples. I, I know I've, I've sort of put it that way so far. Here's this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, but look at where the real activity in this story is taking place. Who's really doing the action in this story here as it comes to us? And that's where we turn the corner to chapter 17. And look at how the very first words of chapter 17 put this. It's not, and sometime later, or another time, or later on, but it comes right after this. Jesus has just spoken these words to his disciples. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But 
I'm telling you this so that you have peace because I have overcome the world. And right after that, Jesus goes into this prayer. Look at this. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Right before this story takes place, right before this conversation, Jesus is going on and on with his disciples about how he's about to leave. He's returning to the Father. And he will send the Holy Spirit in his place, the advocate, the one who will come after, that the Holy Spirit will come. And then right after this conversation, he goes into a prayer about his unity with the Father and the glory that he shares with the Father. In the middle of all of this talk about the disciples' faith, we find God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together. That really the main actor in this story that's happening here is God himself. And a picture of God that shows us who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it, it was a few weeks ago, well, quite a few weeks ago, in, in my high school Sunday school class, church school class, I, we were talking, the discussion was about God. And the question I asked the high schoolers was, where is God right now? Where is God? And, I mean, after giving some answers, I, I think they stumbled upon it as one of those, oh yeah, we should have known the answer to that right away. But really, where is God right now? How would you answer that? Where is God right now, at this moment? Think about that. Challenge for the high school students was, think about that in terms of Trinity, who God is. That God, the Holy Spirit, right now, is given as a gift to the church, indwelling the people of the church. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Where's Jesus? Anyone know where Jesus is? All right. Do you, do you know the Apostles' Creed? I believe in Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where is Jesus right now? right hand of God the Father. That's what we say, we believe, in the Apostles' Creed. And where is the Father right now? Well, the Father is on the throne in heaven with Jesus the Son at his right hand. That's where God is right now. So we think about what it means to come to church. Or we come to church and, and we do things of worship, right? We come into this place and we think we're the ones offering the worship here. We're the ones who sing the songs. We are the ones who pray the prayers. That we are the ones doing the activity of worship. But 
what's God up to while we worship, while we're in this place? Well, if all those statements that we say about who God is and where God is are true, then even right now in this moment of worship, God the Holy Spirit is working in us, prompting our hearts to turn towards God and to give worship to God, that the Holy Spirit is at work doing something in us right now while we're here worshiping. Our worship is offered up to God, and our worship coming from us broken and sinful people. That worship is purified by the Son who mediates for us. The Son who's taken the guilt of our sin. The Son who's given us His perfect righteousness in place of that. That our worship is purified by the Son. And then having been purified, our worship is received by the Father. That God is at work even right now in this place where we are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of people to turn us towards God, that Jesus purifies us before the Heavenly Father, and that the Heavenly Father receives us and the worship we offer in glory and joy. That's where God is and what God is up to. But here's the point. The point is that God is the one doing all the action. God is the primary actor in this. So in this discussion, let's take it back to this conversation Jesus has with his disciples about faith and belief and where their faith is at at the moment and the things they believe and the things they don't believe, the things they understand and the things they don't understand, as though this is something the disciples have to figure out, that they are the ones who have to unravel this mystery, that they are the ones taking the steps to move forward in this? I think John tucks this story in the middle of something bigger so that we can see and understand something here. That this journey of faith that we are all on has a primary actor. It's not us, is it? It's God. That God is the one who's working to grow our faith, to move us, to prompt our hearts to turn to Him. God is the one who purifies what we bring and offer to God before him. God is the one who receives what we offer to him with glory and joy. God is the one who's at work, the primary actor in all of this. So we live in a world of trouble. Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. It's not your job to do that. It's not your job to overcome the world. That's not something God gave for you to do. Because he did that. That's his job. God is the one who's at work to do that. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. That fixing all that's wrong in the world and all that's broken in the world not our job to do that's why jesus came because we can't do it and we never could so what do we do then maybe that's a fair question to ask so so if god is the primary actor and god is the one who does all this so is there anything left for me what what is it that i do what's my response you know i 
I tend to work this into just about every single sermon. And I think I, it's worth repeating over and over because we need to be reminded over and over. How do we respond to God? Well, Jesus summarizes all the commands of the Bible, all the commands, with one word. One word that Jesus says, this is a summary of everything that you've been commanded to do. Love. Your response is one of love. That by loving God and loving others the way that God loves me and others is the greatest response my faith can give. I don't have to be the one to fix the world. I just have to be the one who loves the way God has redeemed me and set me free to love the way that he loves. That's the response that I give. And we can still respond in love, even in a world that has trouble in it. We can still love. Amen. We can still respond in love, even to those who seem unlovable. And when we do that, when we respond to God in love that way, by loving others in a broken world, loving others whom everyone else in the world has said you can't be loved. But when we do that, we show something of God's love, don't we? We do that because we know God's love for us came to its greatest fulfillment at the cross. The cross is where we know that. The cross is where Jesus did the work of overcoming the world. The cross is where we are always pointed back to. And so by seeing the cross of Jesus, we point other people, not to who we are and not to what we've done, but we point other people to God and to what God has done. We do that then in ways that affirm and acknowledge God is the actor. He's the one taking the action. And we live with peace, knowing that God holds all of that in his hands. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word, and thank you that uh, you remind us of all that you do. God, we are sorry for the times when we've tried to make it our job to fix everything in the world that we never could, instead of acknowledging that you are the one who does that and fixes that. Lord, help us again today to know and to understand that peace that you give us, a peace that comes from you, a peace that continually turns us to the cross again. And Lord, may we do that in ways that forever acknowledge that you are the one who is always at work, your Holy Spirit in our hearts, the Son purifying us, and the Father, receiving the praise we give. Lord, thank you for all that you do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.